This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey there, Seeing Redders. We love Beth and Mark. But if you're looking for some ear treats between their episodes, why not try us over at the Switchblade Sisters Social Club? I'm Randa. And I'm Dee. And we're bringing you a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Switchblade Sisters Social Club or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bye. Bye. And welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for joining us once again this week. Let's take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters and then we'll dive right into this one. Did you want to do the honours, Bethan? Go on. Everyone loves it when I get there. Go on. Names treat wrong, yourself. They say. Yeah. Thank you so, so much to all of our Patreon supporters, but most especially this week, our newest. We have Liz Fisher. Iona Smith, David the Ghost, Tracy Newman, Mandy McKinnon, Deck Walsh, Cassie Gleason, Eleanor Jewell, Kayla Elizabeth Cook, Poppy Starling, and Anne Raya. I don't think I got anything wrong there. I'm intrigued I, to see what I've said wrong. I feel like you've been practising. You must have been. I have not practised. That's just how good I am. I'm such a professional. As if. Uh, yeah, thank you to all of you guys. Thank you to our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you want to join these people, then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. The COVID-19 lockdown in the UK, which began in March 2020, was arguably one of the most significant and damaging chapters in modern history. There wasn't a single person who wasn't affected by the enforced periods of isolation that we all had to endure. Whilst confusing yet rigorously enforced rules and regulations of the lockdowns were the same for everyone, except the government, we all experienced the enduring physical, emotional and psychological effects differently. And it was, we've not really talked about it much on the podcast, have we Bethan? But yeah, wasn't it just a terrible time for for all of us, regardless of how we were affected? It's mad now, isn't it, when you think back, we could both share kind of how it hit us personally and that sort of thing um yeah it's really it was just really odd and when you look back and you think about it it, yeah very very strange um and I agree aside from the government and that's quite topical at the moment you know there's a lot going on about certain people who perhaps um tried to enforce rules that they weren't willing to stick to themselves yeah lots of lots of frustration 
I think a lot of us, a lot of the general population are still processing what happened in those three years or so. It was such a tough time, regardless of how you were impacted personally. So what I mean by that is, you know, lots of people lost loved ones uh, or had loved ones who were in hospital and very sick. And that adds a whole new dimension. But even if you were fortunate enough not to be in that position, it was still so difficult and so weird and so tough for all of us. And of course, everybody now has a story to tell. Everyone can accurately remember where they were, who they were with and how the whole harrowing episode made them feel. Crippling loneliness, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, financial strain. But that's enough about me. No. (laughs) I couldn't resist. It was a a terrible time for all of us. And of course, lots of us endured feelings of sadness and grief, as I said earlier, for the loved ones who we lost at that time. And I also think as well... Maybe someone you didn't lose a person, but um, people who lost the opportunity to get married with all of their friends and family around them, for example. Mm. People who, um, like, there will be people who were in the same position as me being pregnant through a lockdown where you're not allowed to do the normal things. People in my position, similar sort of position, where their little ones didn't go to play groups until they were like two years old. That was quite a big thing even though in the grand scheme of things it's a doctor's appointment it's a playgroup it's a thing obviously it's not as big as losing someone or not being able to go to someone's funeral I was talking to a customer recently who talked about how she couldn't go to her partner's funeral because of when he passed away and that her family couldn't travel down and support her that's really really major so when I look back and I think I didn't go to baby groups or I feel like my mat leave was not the kind of maternity leave that you would have normally been able to experience and have a great time going off and doing all these wonderful things. It's still a loss of something that you either thought you would have or that you'd hoped for or that didn't get to happen. A friend of mine had her wedding postponed three times and she and they ended up just having a very small wedding. And I still kind of have, it's obviously not grief like a lost loved one, but I still grieve the fact that I wasn't at my best friend's wedding. So yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that people had to put up with and deal with and things that changed off the back of it. Yeah, some some things for the better, some things for the worse. I remember going to a funeral during one of the, it was a lockdown, but kind of less restrictive. And I remember seeing the wife, the widow of the deceased uh, stood there and crying and none of us could go over and hug her. That's how bad it was. She lost her husband and none of us could go over and hug her and comfort her. It was just... Yeah, it was an awful time. And as I said, we've all absolutely got multiple stories to tell of of the harrowing times that we all endured, regardless of our situations. In the wake of the pandemic, several ugly and distressing stories have surfaced that tell of the immense suffering that was endured by some of the less fortunate amongst us. Ordinary people whose lives were literally ruined by the pandemic, so failed marriages, lost jobs, bankruptcies, domestic abuse and even suicide, and we did see an increase uh, in suicide during the pandemic, and there seems to be no shortage of examples of how badly some of us suffered. However, arguably none are more distressing than the case of a young disabled teenager who at a time in her life when she was most vulnerable and needed the most care was neglected and forgotten and quite literally left to rot by the very people who should have loved her and had her back. In today's episode, we're going to tell you her story. It's not a case that I've been able to to really look into very well, so I'm so glad that you're able to. 
And whilst it's going to be really tough, I'm really glad that we're going to talk about her because I think it's so important. Yeah, we it's a case that we first discussed in a an earlier episode of Crime Wave, wasn't it? So I think um, the two perpetrators had been arrested at that point and the case hadn't gone to trial. So it was all coming out. And obviously, yeah, we have some closure now and we have a lot more information, but it's a desperately sad story. And fair warning, this episode will be deeply upsetting. It involves graphic descriptions of child abuse and neglect, as well as the intense pain and suffering that occurred as a result. And yeah, it definitely won't be suitable for all listeners because we will touch on the pandemic too. Kayleigh Titford was born in 2004 in Newport, a city and county borough in Wales situated on the River Usk in the county of Powys. She was born to parents Alan Titford and Sarah Lloyd-Jones and she was one of five children born to the couple. To say that Kayleigh had a tough start in life would be putting things lightly. She was born with spina bifida, a congenital birth defect that affects the development of the spinal cord, the spinal column and the surrounding structures. It occurs when the neural tube, which normally develops into the brain and spinal cord, doesn't close completely during fetal development. And this incomplete closure leaves a gap or opening in the vertebrae. And that then leaves the patient with severely limited mobility and, as was the case with young Kaylee, unable to walk and totally reliant on a wheelchair. Despite her disabilities and limitations, Kaylee grew up to be a uniquely tough little cookie. She was fiercely independent and anything she could do by herself would be absolutely done by herself. She exhibited an inherent stubbornness and felt determined not to allow her condition to slow her down or hold her back, to the point where she even adamantly refused to allow anyone to push her wheelchair for her. And I just loved that about her, this real determination. As she grew up, Kaylee developed a passion for wheelchair sport and began to compete in several national events, including track and wheelchair basketball. She was said to be extremely good at this and her coach commented that she had real potential to one day compete and represent her country in the Paralympics. Oh my god, I love this. She's just such a legend and I when you said about she'd refused to let anyone push her wheelchair for her, I've I've got to share something that my eldest you know, like just children can just be a nightmare sometimes. So we were out shopping and um she saw she was like talking to everyone everyone that walked past she'd say hi to ask them what they were doing we were in a shoe shop and quite often she would make a comment about what shoes they were about to buy it was hilarious it was very very sweet a woman goes past in a wheelchair and she very loudly went I mean why is that lady not pushing herself why she got someone pushing her auntie michelle pushes herself because her auntie michelle's in a wheelchair and she does she wheels herself around she um has like the sort of chair where you use your back wheels to push yourself around um like not like a mobility one and then my grandma's also in a wheelchair and she has a motorized wheelchair so both of them she's never seen someone be pushed Mm -hmm. and she was like why is she not pushing herself and i was like right some people get pushed around some people don't that lady's just not she's chosen not to oh okay then then she just went over to the agent she was like hello (laughs) and just walked off and I was like oh god this lady's now been shamed for not pushing herself around in a wheelchair she might might not have been able to push herself she might not have been able to do it yeah exactly I could imagine Kaylee being like don't you worry I push myself thank you very much (laughs) absolutely and personality wise she was described as genuine sweet and simply lovely 
She adored animals and had a deep sense of kindness and empathy towards others. And she was also funny, witty and confident. Rarely would anyone ever hear Kaylee complaining about her life's difficulties. She loved life and she just wanted to make the most of the time that she had on this earth. Behind closed doors, however, the Titford household was a volatile, chaotic and unstable environment. Alan Titford was known to the local police as a perpetrator of domestic abuse, and the police had been called out to the house on multiple occasions in order to intervene in several disturbances. All five of the Titford children were on the child protection register with the local authority, and whilst all of the children were considered to be at risk, it was Kaylee who was the social service's main concern. I did not realise that, that there, there were the five children and that they were all classed as at all risk as well. Yeah. Gosh. Due to her disabilities, Kaylee needed additional care and attention from her caregivers. And even from a very early stage, there were significant concerns that Alan and Sarah were simply not up to the task. For example, due to Kaylee's lack of mobility, she gained an unhealthy amount of weight very easily which, if left unchecked, would result in a huge threat to her long-term health and well-being. Despite this, it was understood that the Titford family mainly lived on a diet of fast food and takeaways. As such, Kaylee, who already had severe weight issues, continued to balloon in size as she got older. And I just felt so sad for her, even at this point, just the fact that that would be one of life's few pleasures at this time for her junk food, takeaways, and it was just adding to that morbid obesity and ultimately she ended up with a BMI of 70, which is incredibly high and life-threatening. And that, you know, she was, at this time, she's she's a young teenager, so it's very difficult for her to say no. And also this was the only choice she had. It was starve or have fast food because mum and dad couldn't be bothered to do any cooking and, and make any kind of nutritious meals. So, and I think yeah. you're right when you say this is like this would have been one of her pleasures in life, you know, to have some treat food. But that should have been every once in a while as a yeah. treat. It shouldn't have been every meal. And you're right that you know, for any child, that is neglect. That's awful. There is no, there is no excuse for that. No. But especially when you have been told that your child is going to easily gain weight. And 100%. be really, really poorly due to that. You know, your child has no mobility. Therefore, you need to be the person, the people who are really, really taking care of that. You, it's not like you've got a child who you can say, well, yeah, they eat all of this, but they go out running around in the garden all day, all in the evening or something. I just, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? They just, ha- they just don't seem to have any sort of care. No, no, there's no parental qualities here. Despite attempts at interventions and advice from social services, Alan and Sarah failed to take any of it seriously. Even for an able-bodied child, this would have been seen as neglectful or abuse, but in Kaylee's case, it was especially harmful. It's crucial for individuals with spina bifida to be kept mobile for several reasons. Firstly, regular movement and physical activity helps to maintain joint flexibility, muscle strength and overall physical fitness. And this is particularly important as spina bifida can lead to muscle weakness and limited mobility, as we've said. Additionally, though, staying mobile helps to prevent complications such as muscle contractures, osteoporosis and respiratory issues. 
and being mobile also promotes healthy circulation, preventing blood clots and pressure sores, and moreover, mobility enhances independence, social interaction and psychological well-being, which allows individuals with spina bifida to actively participate in daily activities and to engage with their environment. So it's psychologically and physically important to have a nutritious diet and to be kept as mobile as you possibly can be with that condition. Alan Titford knew that this was important, and Sarah Lloyd-Jones, who made her living as a carer, also knew this full well which is what makes the events that followed all the more shocking and upsetting. How can you have a career as a carer and be such an uncaring person? Like it's, oh, I feel like just this whole episode is going to be you telling us the case and me just going, I fucking hate these people. Yeah, it is mind-bendingly troublesome in terms of the lack of care that was provided and just you just cannot get your head around why and how and how this went unchecked as well. So it's incredibly frustrating, this episode. There is documented evidence that the local authority in Powys tried on several occasions to intervene by offering external support and respite care to the Titford family in regard to Kaylee's health needs. They recognised that Alan worked long hours and Sarah was an exhausted mother who had four other children to look after. However, all offers of help were outright rejected by Alan and Sarah. Letters and calls went unanswered and social services who showed up for home visits were refused entry to the house. Furthermore, when social services organised vital medical appointments for Kaylee, Alan and Sarah consistently failed to show up with her. And there were concerns that Kaylee's parents were being outright neglectful of her health and well-being through nothing more than sheer laziness. They were simply useless parents who couldn't bring themselves to make their disabled daughter's needs a priority. And that required a measure of time and effort on their part, and they were simply unwilling to provide that time or effort. There was no evidence that either of Kaylee's parents were struggling in any way. They themselves had no known physical or mental health conditions, and they were doing okay financially. The only rational explanation for the neglect of their duties to Kaylee was sheer laziness. They simply couldn't be bothered to care for her anymore, and so instead adopted an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality, unwilling to do even the bare minimum, and it gets a whole lot worse from here on in. It just makes me so cross, and there's people out there who cannot have children, and who long for children, who would give anything, and these people are just can't even be bothered to take her to really important medical like appointments. Like, what? We all have, as parents, days or moments where you kind of go, oh, gosh, like, I'll just put the telly on to get five minutes peace or maybe we'll have freezer dinner rather than standing and cooking something properly. That is normal. But for your entire existence and your child's existence to be lazy and not bothered, like, that is... Oh, yeah. I I know it's easy to say, but like surely you would just kind of try and do something where you could get her help from somebody who actually is going to give a shit. Yeah, or the like I say, the local authority were involved. They were reaching out and offering support. I don't understand how, but how have they? How has she not been removed from this home? That's what bothers me. Is if you're not taking a child that needs medical attention to their appointments. And you're refusing entry to the home and stuff like that. I, I can't understand how that's not been flagged a lot higher already. Mm. 
Yeah, and I, I don't know what what will happen following that. I don't know if there's been an investigation. This has not long come to trial, so um, it might be that they were were awaiting the outcome of the trial before going any further. So maybe there will be an investigation. But yeah, I have the same questions as, as you and as our listeners will have shortly. I have a couple of friends who work in social care and the the jobs they do are nowhere near this level and yet they are constantly writing reports and and having to chase up on things and follow up on things and the potential neglect and abuse that they're investigating is nowhere near this and yet they're constant so how is this being ignored or f- disregarded I, I mean I'm I'm not sticking up for them I don't know all of the details but I, I don't think they were ignoring it I think they were trying to intervene I think okay. we then saw the onset of the pandemic in 2020 things got a whole lot worse for Kaylee and you know what it's like at that time it was uh, people were struggling to be able to do their jobs for lots of difficult reasons practical reasons other reasons and yeah it might have just been that they didn't have the resources, the local council, the authority didn't have the resources to be able to intervene more or it was more easily hidden from them at that point because hospital appointments weren't happening. So there was nothing for her to miss. School wasn't happening. It was happening online. So it was easier to slip under the radar, I think, over those years, certainly. And that's, I think, Kaylee was a victim of that for sure. By the time the pandemic rolled around in early 2020, Kaylee had become dangerously obese. As such, during the COVID-19 lockdown between March and October 2020, she was confined to her bed and totally reliant on her parents for help now. They'd become her one and only lifeline and without them she was helpless and completely unable to care for herself, even the most basic of, of needs she was dependent on them for. And her parents knew this full well. However, during this period of lockdown, Kaylee was largely left on her own and ignored completely. Her only source of entertainment was her phone and a TV, and she'd spend days at a time in her bedroom with nobody to talk to. The best version of care her parents could come up with was to go out and get unhealthy amounts of fast food takeaway, which of course massively contributed to her worsening obesity. And they would do that twice a day, placing it next to her bed before then leaving her bedroom and leaving her all alone. And it's just, it breaks my heart. To think of this child that was so um, independent and, you know, fiercely independent, and then suddenly she's just left. I just, yeah. Yeah, she's in her mid-teens. Just heartbreaking. She's in her mid-teens at this point as well. So naturally, that's when a teenage girl is going to want to be expressing uh, more independence, not less, and and not being as reliant upon family. And of course, her circumstances dictated that. But there would have been other ways that she could have gained some independence with their help. and, And it went absolutely the other way. As time marched on, Kaylee's personal care went right out of the window. Thanks to her parents' failure to ensure that her basic needs were being met, she would go without showering for several months at a time, and she was forced to urinate and defecate in her own bed. Due to her spina bifida and lack of mobility, Kaylee used a catheter bag to pass urine. However, when her parents made the callous decision to write her off and unceremoniously quit their roles as her carers, they refused to even enter her room to empty the bag. And this caused the bag to fill up past its capacity to then swell up and eventually burst. 
And from then on, Kaylee's bag was just useless. So can you imagine that, that they have allowed her catheter bag to fill up and burst in that room, her urine sprayed everywhere around that room. And now that doesn't even work. And yeah, I don't know why, I don't know what happened, but the care had never been good. But it basically, at this point, just kind of stopped and they just, they just, yeah, left her, you know, to her own devices. The stench from Kaylee's room was so intense and stomach churning that it literally attracted flies and it made Kaylee vomit on herself intermittently, which only added to the growing amount of human filth in the room in which she was being forced to live. Before long, the smell was permeating through the entire house to the point where even neighbours and passers-by could detect it. However, despite all of this, her parents still point-blank refused to go upstairs and clean Kaylee up or alleviate her suffering in any way. This is just truly shocking stuff. When it became too much to bear, Kaylee began desperately texting her parents on WhatsApp, pleading with them to help her get cleaned up and deal with the flies and maggots that had begun to appear around her rotting, filthy flesh. So they are, yeah, they are downstairs. She is upstairs. Her only way of communicating with them is via WhatsApp. And most of these messages were ignored and left unread. And Kaylee's sister also begged her parents, Alan and Sandra, to do something to help her sister Kaylee, but she too was ignored and brushed aside. During this time, Alan and Sarah received numerous calls from Kaylee's school regarding her welfare, in which Sarah repeatedly lied as to why Kaylee could not attend her online lessons. So it goes back to this whole lockdown thing of if a child doesn't turn up to school, as opposed to a child not turning up for online lessons it's sort of less obvious and there's less consequences and can you really send a teacher around when there's a lockdown happening? That probably wasn't allowed. So unless you've got grave concerns for someone's welfare and this welfare was being hidden below the radar, that there was probably very limited that they could do. I really do believe that. In addition, Kaylee's parents had repeatedly refused help from services such as the Newport Children's Hospital and a youth intervention service. With no idea just how bad the ongoing abuse and neglect had become, her school and the local authority chose not to carry out a home visit. So I'm not saying they're not culpable at all in any of this. I'm just saying that I genuinely believe in the circumstances they tried, it wasn't good enough, and with hindsight they could have done an awful lot more, but we must remember what it was like at that time. And up until this initial lockdown in 2020, yes, Kaylee's welfare was being neglected, but it wasn't as bad as the picture we have just painted. The other thing that really boggles my mind is how Alan and Sarah can possibly live in a house like this as well. Yeah. Um, that that to me screams there must be something wrong with them as well like i it is never going to justify or remove any culpability mm. in my opinion but there must be mentally there must be some sort of mental health issue going on there as well because to be able to live in a property where someone else's bodily fluids fluids are smelling so bad that out in the street and neighbors can smell that is horrendous but I've just got so many questions. Like, mm. how are the other, you know, these poor other children are in the house, you know, her other se- her sister's begging them to do something to help as well. And yet they're still not doing anything. Like, what is going on there? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. There's, there's something 
going on isn't there? It doesn't excuse what happens, but there's clearly something going on, whether it's severe depression, who knows, but something is at play there because they're living in these squalid conditions themselves. And there's a case that I'm going to be talking about in Crime Wave, which will be out on Friday for our Patreon supporters. And it's very similar to this, and it's actually an adult male who was, uh, he received appalling an appalling lack of care from his carer who lived in the house and his wife who ended up having an affair with the carer and he was left to um, lie in his own filth and it, it was a very similar situation and that house was was too very squalid so the conditions that that couple were living in were appalling not just this the victim of it so yeah it's um must be quite often the way it's it's just a deterioration within that household that ultimately manifests or affects mostly the the most vulnerable. So Kaylee had essentially been written off, abandoned and left to rot, and she was completely and utterly alone. By this point, the maggots that had initially been attracted by the growing amount of human filth were beginning to feast on the open and infected bed sores that began to form all over Kaylee's body, causing agonising and unimaginable pain. She was literally rotting. There were maggots on open wounds on her. So bed sores, also known as pressure sores or pressure ulcers, are primarily caused by prolonged pressure on specific areas of the body. When a person remains in one position for an extended period, especially if they're immobile or have limited mobility, the constant pressure restricts blood flow to the skin and the underlying tissue. This lack of blood flow deprives the affected area of essential nutrients and oxygen, which then leads to tissue damage and the formation of bed sores. Other factors that contribute to their development include friction when the skin rubs against the surface, moisture buildup, poor nutrition, compromised immune system and impaired sensory perception. Prompt interventions such as regular repositioning, maintaining good hygiene, adequate nutrition, proper skin care can all help to prevent and treat bed sores. So they there was probably but Kaylee a sense wasn't even of, getting one of those things. She wasn't getting alone, one of like those. All of them. And there's there's possibly a sense of inevitability with somebody who is largely bed bound due to mobility issues. There's a sense of inevitability that bed sores and pressure sores will emerge, but they can absolutely be mitigated and managed. And none of that happened here. Unfortunately for Kaylee, she wasn't getting any of that, as we said. So her sores were free to emerge all over her immobile body. Due to the filthy and squalid conditions that she was living in, it took no time at all for her open bed sores to become severely and dangerously infected. In many cases, if these infections are left untreated for an extended period of time and become too severe, they can spread beyond the skin and into the underlying tissue, they can spread into the muscles, even the bones and of course the bloodstream. And this can then lead to a condition called sepsis, which I think most of us are aware of. And that is a life-threatening infection of the blood that can cause widespread inflammation throughout the body. And sepsis rapidly progresses to the vital organs. It can lead to organ failure and death if it's not promptly treated. So, you know, a huge, huge risk of this happening. That was pretty much a given at this point, that the lack of care and attention, you have soiled sheets faeces, urine, vomit, flies all over her, maggots in rotting wounds. This is going to happen, isn't it? You know, this is only a matter of time before this happens. Yeah, it's it's just inevitable. 
And this process had already begun for Kaylee. She was a living corpse, for want of a better way of describing her, but I have to be honest. And she was a living corpse. If she was in the desert, vultures would have been circling above her. Her body was entering a similar process of decay that would occur in a dead person, yet she was alive and lucid, and able to feel everything that was happening to her. This may be up there with some of the most painful and inhuman ways for someone to die. At the beginning of October 2020, Kaylee's infection had become so excruciating that she began crying and shrieking at the top of her lungs. She was crying out for help and her pain and suffering had reached such extreme levels that she no longer cared who or where that help came from. Even though it was her parents who caused so much suffering, she knew that she was so desperately dependent on them for for help. And yet she was squealing, crying, shrieking at the top of her lungs for help. Shockingly, her cruel and callous parents still decided not to go up to her bedroom to help her. Instead, they sent her angry WhatsApp messages demanding that she stop fucking screaming. Oh my god! If as if I couldn't hate them anymore, then I honestly, did. I mean, they're they are up there with the most hated for me. We've done approaching two hundred and fifty episodes of Seeing Red, and there are so very few people that that actually would be on a list of people that I would want to see endure pain and suffering because I don't really believe in that. But actually with people like this, I think it's necessary for them to understand what they've done to somebody else. Kaylee couldn't help herself, so she continued to scream. But the more she screamed, the more determined her parents became to ignore her. Then one morning, the screaming stopped. Her room fell completely silent. Kaylee Titford's corpse was discovered by the elderly mother of Alan Titford, her father, on October the 10th in 2020, and she was just 16 years old. When emergency responders reached the scene, they were literally sickened by what they discovered. It was clear to them that Kaylee was dead and had been for a while. However, the filthy and squalid conditions in which she'd been living made even the most experienced and hardened paramedics run out to the garden to throw up. One medic who attended the scene would later testify that her living conditions were not fit for an animal. And I know that expression is used a lot when we're describing squalid conditions. And personally, I think an animal should be afforded really good care and really good living conditions. So well, that doesn't do it justice. It wasn't fit. I would say those conditions weren't even fit for a dead person or a horrible person that has committed atrocious crimes. They weren't fit for anyone or anything no and i but i know what you mean however i can understand why the medic would use that I, as I a phrase it, because yeah. yeah we should have higher standards i mean both of us would agree that actually yes animals deserve as high standards and everyone who listens to this show will know that but yeah um it's not yeah it's not even like a rat on a farm yeah, that's, that's not a it, pet yeah. or something. It's not even yeah. that sort of level. It's not even cockroaches that nobody really particularly likes. I don't even like wasps, and I wouldn't wish this on a wasp, if that no. makes sense. Like, it's just so horrendous. And we've seen this before numerous times, haven't we, where the medical professionals or the police officers or the law enforcement who arrive at a scene, how awful and harrowing it is for them because... Yeah. They do this job day in, day out, and it's an awful job anyway, but they probably have some really good highs and some really wonderful moments where they reunite somebody with somebody or they can save someone and then they get to a case like this. And I just don't know how how you kind of come back from 
witnessing no. a scene like this. And my cousin's a paramedic and he goes and, you know, sees some awful stuff. He's been on TV, so I can talk about it because he's been in one of those documentary things and goes to harrowing scenes and he's seen open wounds with maggots feasting upon rotting flesh. He's seen that before. So these paramedics would have seen that kind of thing before. These are really hardened people. They have to be to deal with these crisis situations. So for them to be running outside of the house to throw up in the garden really is saying something at this point. Another medic would later tearfully explain to the police that even after 25 years on the job, they'd never come across anything more appalling or distressing as this. Kaylee's bedsheets were saturated with her urine, feces and pools of dried vomit. Her hair was filthy and matted. Her legs had turned black due to the advanced infection that had destroyed her skin and soft muscle tissue beneath it. Her body was covered in open, weeping bed sores, many of which were full of maggots that had been literally eating her alive. The unimaginable stench of her rotting flesh was so overpowering that many of the emergency responders couldn't stand to be in the room for more than a few moments without wanting to pass out. The scene was heartbreaking. A young, helpless, disabled girl who had no way of looking after herself had fallen victim to a shocking campaign of willful and systematic neglect that had ultimately caused her to die in extreme pain. And that willful and systematic neglect had been perpetrated by the very people this young girl relied on for her very survival. And I also just wanted to mention at this point, so I talked earlier about Kaylee being really empathetic and and really uh, passionate about animal welfare. So she was someone who had feelings. She wasn't like her parents. She wasn't hardened. She was a lovely girl. And she was probably, whilst in extreme pain and really conscious of the physical issues, mentally she was probably thinking... Why are they doing this to me? Why can a human do this to another human, let alone yeah. a mother and a father do this to their daughter? She must have been yeah, anguished absolutely. thinking about that, yeah. And I just imagine her hearing her family downstairs, you know, you would assume having some sort of family times together and maybe even hearing them laughing and playing and the other children, all these things that these other children have and thinking, well, why don't I have that? Why am I so hated? Or like, what's what's the reason that I'm the one in this situation? Yeah. yeah. Several of the emergency responders cried openly as they finally lifted Kaylee from her filthy, urine-soaked and shit-covered mattress and took her away for good. However, it was too little, too late. Kaylee's official cause of death was recorded as inflammation and infection in extensive areas of ulceration arising from obesity and its complications, and immobility in a girl with spina bifida and hydrocephalus. At her death, she weighed more than 22 stone and had a body mass index of 70. To put that into context, for a healthy female of Kaylee's height and age, her BMI should have been no higher than 25, and it was 70. She was 22 stone. There was no confusion in anyone's mind. The unimaginable levels of abuse and neglect that Kaylee had cruelly been subjected to had directly caused her death. This was an irrefutable fact and there was a criminal case to answer here. Alan Titford and Sarah Lloyd-Jones were arrested on suspicion of manslaughter through gross negligence the following day. 
Under police questioning, Alan Titford strenuously denied any responsibility for Kaylee's death, arguing that he had been working upwards of 50 hours a week and that his then unemployed wife Sarah was responsible for looking after Kaylee and always had been. Shockingly, he claimed to have been completely unaware of just how bad a state his daughter was in. Bullshit. Conversely, Sarah Lloyd-Jones was much more remorseful and made no attempt to defend or justify her failure to protect her daughter. She admitted that Kaylee had been essentially abandoned and that she had not been moved from her bed or looked after in any way since before lockdown seven months prior. So, you know, I don't know what's going on in her head, but she she might have received legal advice that you're banged to rights. You need to just say, yes, I've done this so that you get a lighter sentence because you're going to be going to prison for a long time as it is. Um, or maybe there was genuine remorse and this kind of waking up out of this what was essentially a fucking coma of what the fuck have we just done? That's what I'm hoping. I don't know. Um, but yeah, coming to her senses and thinking, Jesus Christ, what have we done? We've killed our daughter. What was going on for the last seven Nothing months and before? Nothing else we can say. We just go, yeah. And do you know what? We've said that, haven't we? Don't make up a stupid defence. Don't try and lie. Yeah. Just put your hands up and say, fucked up or I I did this horrific thing. Yeah, completely agree. Both Alan and Sarah were charged with manslaughter and granted bail, and their criminal trial commenced in January 2023. So this is fairly recent, you know, this was only six months ago. It was the first time in UK criminal history that parents had been prosecuted for manslaughter for failing to manage their child's weight, resulting in death. So ultimately that was the crux of this, the proximate cause. However, failing to manage Kaylee's weight was only one of many serious prosecutable failures in their parental duty of care. But I guess it was the one that would have um, carried the most definitive chance of a prosecution, I guess. There were other charges listed to the court and they included failing to ensure that Kaylee did not stay immobile for periods of time detrimental to her health and well-being failing to ensure that she was living in a safe and hygienic environment, failing to ensure that she was maintained to a hygienic physical standard, failing to ensure that her health needs were being met, and failing to ensure that her medical needs were being met. Um, so, you know, loads of, of different charges, ultimately. And I just wanted to call them out for the absolute c- that they are at that point, and I will bleep that out. We don't use that word lightly, but I agree with you. That is... Just the only way to sum them up, what they have done here is not an accident or or anything. It is just pure, evil, willful, horrendous neglect. Yeah. And there's no excuse. No, no, I think that's it. And we'll, we'll hear in a moment about Alan Titford's defence. It is quite interesting. And this was his excuse. So Alan Titford's defence for his appalling failure as a father was to push his own wife, Sarah Lloyd-Jones, under the bus by maintaining that she had always been the one to deal with Kaylee's hygiene issues. However, when pressed by the prosecution, he repeatedly stated, I am lazy, and admitted to being not a very good dad, the understatement of the century. The court rejected such a pathetic excuse outright and the judge would later rule that Alan Titford was every bit as responsible for what happened to poor Kaylee as his wife Sarah was, or partner Sarah, I don't think they were married. Alan eventually accepted that he was as much to blame for the tragedy as Sarah. Despite this, however, he still declined to change his plea and denied gross negligence manslaughter and an alternative count of causing or allowing the death of a child. 
The court heard that Sarah Lloyd-Jones had pleaded guilty to gross negligence manslaughter, and the defence explained to the jury that Sarah, who worked as a carer from 2018, was responsible for most of Kaylee's care after she reached puberty, as Alan Titford stepped back because he wasn't, quote, comfortable with looking after a pubescent young woman with severe disabilities. Which I have to say at this point, Kaylee was 16 at the time. Um, that's not a bad defence, to be fair, and maybe there was some truth in that. Or I would like to think there was some truth in wanting to afford his daughter that dignity. However, that's clearly bullshit because no dignity was afforded to Kaylee, was was it? No. And he could have gone and paid for outside carers to come in and look after his daughter if he felt that he couldn't wash and... Um, assist her with going to the toilet and things that yeah valid um a dad may not feel comfortable and the daughter may not feel comfortable with her dad helping her in those ways or you know that's I understand that as a as an idea and as a theory but in this case it's clearly bullshit there are other ways you could support that person and also I'm not being funny I don't care how much you don't want me to help you go to the toilet but if I come up to see you for whatever reason, I've not come to see my child for two weeks thinking her mum's doing all the work and then I come in and you're in that state. You go and help your loved one, even if you did feel uncomfortable. You know, it's just, they weren't even, they weren't spending time with their child. They weren't making any sort of effort. They were just dumping food at her and then just, and ultimately then just ignoring her entirely. No. None of this is even worth kind of our breath, is it? Like no. their excuses. No, absolutely. And I, I will come on to just detail a bit more of the defence in a moment. But I wanted to say that, you know, it's not a case of paying for carers. They would have been receiving disability payments, carers allowance, attendance allowance, all sorts of payments from the government to go towards Kaylee's care. And obviously none of that was used as it should have been. The defence also argued that it was reasonable for Alan Titford to believe his partner was looking after Kaylee and aware of the danger of pressure sores on her legs. He said Alan Titford was a full-time removal worker, working 40 to 50 hours a week and 15 days straight before Kaylee's death, stating, Here is a defendant who was working throughout, who we say quite rightly, because he was entitled to, because of everything that she had done so well, truly believed until the day Kaylee was found that Sarah Lloyd-Jones was doing the right thing, was giving the right treatment and didn't know that she wasn't. So it was a strong Why did he not even look heard. in to talk to his daughter? Exactly. There's there's huge neglect, even if it's not on the physical needs of Kaylee. There's no nurturing, there's no parental responsibility, there's no popping up to see her after a day at work. How are you? How has your day been? Do you need anything? He just completely switched off from it. He was able to, I guess, just compartmentalise that that was going on upstairs. I'd say he was complicit in it anyway, but, you know, he was able to just sort of close the door on it and get used to the smell of his daughter's rotting flesh and soiled bedsheets and mattress, filthy mattress that she was living in that was probably constantly wet. It's just, yeah, you know, there is no defence for this at all. When the time came for the prosecution to take the stand, the jury were told all about the fly problem and the maggot infestation in Kaylee's bedroom and how she'd been living in nightmarish, unimaginable filth for months on end. They described how towards the end of her life, when her pain and suffering had reached its absolute peak, Kaylee had screamed at the top of her lungs and begged her parents for assistance, only to be berated and ignored. 
They were then shown stomach-turning images and body cam footage of Kaylee's living conditions, described by the prosecution as a place of squalor and degradation. The content was so graphic and upsetting in nature that the judge had to again remind jury members to divorce themselves from their own emotional responses to the images and focus purely on the facts and logic. He said, The horror at the end of the case is not necessarily the benchmark for guilt or innocence. It is revolting. It is horrific. There's no dispute about that, but you have to look at how it got to that point. But more importantly, whether you were sure Alan Titford, leaving aside Sarah Lloyd-Jones because she accepts that she was, is in any way criminally liable for the situation we know occurred. So I wanted to include that because I think it's quite important that the living conditions of the general house, the living conditions that Kaylee found herself in, I suppose that there is more to that and it's not, you know, that's not necessarily what this is about, although it is, but that's more symptomatic of the lack of care, which is what you're looking to find this person guilty of. So kind of try and see beyond that and just look at the facts and try and work out whether this person was culpable in this. Try not to just let the shock and the emotion of that scene override the reliance on the facts hopefully i've explained that in the way i wanted to yeah you have i still think that as a if i was on that jury i would a hundred percent still think he was culpable but i think that's a really good way to describe it good in late january 2023 after a three-week trial and seven hours of deliberation the jury unanimously found alan tit for guilty of manslaughter by gross negligence The court ruled that Kaylee's parents caused her death through shocking and prolonged neglect during the COVID-19 lockdown between March 2020 and the date of her death in October of the same year. And I wanted to just say at this point, I I talked earlier on about how we all have a story to tell from that time. It was the first lockdown. It was such a shock. And we all remember it. We We remember who we were with, where we were, what we were doing, what was going on with work, personal lives, etc., And we're able to kind of go back now in time and and remember ourselves at that time. For example, in this country, it was really warm when we went into that initial lockdown. There was a lot of sunshine and lots of us, if we were lucky enough to have gardens, spent time in our gardens because we couldn't go out anyway. And I look back to myself, sat on my deck in, having a drink in the sunshine, trying to process those weird circumstances that were, you know, unfolding around us. And now I can think back and think right at that time, at that moment, I was sat there having a drink on my deck in in the sunshine. Kaylee Titford was lay in her bed in filth with her rotting flesh and none of us knew. Mm. And that's not our fault, obviously, but it just makes me think like, fucking hell, what's going on right now that we don't know about? What abuse and suffering are people enduring as we sit here recording our podcast that will come to light? hopefully, uh, or potentially won't come to light, which is even worse. So this despicable pair was sentenced at Swansea Crown Court on the 7th of March before Judge Martin Griffiths. In his closing remarks, the judge laid bare the conditions Kaylee died in after her parents' neglect in no uncertain terms. So he said, Kaylee could see the flies and the maggots. She complained about them. She could see the bottles of urine from her catheter left unemptied and uncollected from the floor. She could see that her wheelchair was out of reach. She would know it was now too small for her anyway. She could see dirty bedding and the mess in the room, and she knew she had not been properly washed for a long time. 
He continued, I accept that lockdown created unusual circumstances, although both defendants were going out to work after March 2020. It is clear to me that what the defendants could not do was within their power to deal with by calling for appropriate help, which they did not do. Their failures were not for reasons beyond their control. They never asked for help they did not get. They did not ask for help at all. It was made easy for them to ask for help. I do not accept that either defendant has shown remorse that should count as significant mitigation. Alan Titford pleaded not guilty, and even to the author of the pre-sentence report, blamed his partner and even his daughter. Sarah Lloyd-Jones pleaded guilty and will get credit for that. The judge went on to summarise the case and rebuke the couple for their multiple catastrophic parental failures. The judge upheld that both parents were both equally responsible and both equally culpable. In the aftermath of the trial, Kaylee's extended family members paid homage to the beautiful human being that Kaylee was and expressed their anger and grief over what had happened, which was, by all accounts, an infuriatingly preventable tragedy. And this family, we don't know exactly where they lived, maybe they were close by, but there were many months where you could not see your own family, so there there was nothing they could do. Just two months ago, in May 2023, and this is really interesting and a good news story. The prosecution appealed against the leniency of the prison sentences which saw Alan's term increase from seven and a half years to ten years and Sarah Lloyd-Jones's prison term increased from six to eight years. I'm so glad about that. That's um, so pleasing. Real common sense approach. We rarely see this but yes such was the absolute appalling reaction to this that it was deemed in the public interest that they went and appealed those sentences. The judge who oversaw the appeal proceedings accepted that the original sentences were unduly lenient, concluding they failed to reflect culpability, the seriousness of the offending and the gravity of the aggravating features. So that is the only positive that you can end on in this whole sorry story and we have to just try and remember Kaylee in those earlier years as this feisty, fiercely independent young woman that she was becoming who could be stubborn and could be fun and could take enjoyment in life and who had this deep sense of empathy, caring for animals and all of that. We have to just try and focus on that rather than the appalling end to her life. And at least there was a common sense approach with those sentences. Absolutely, just remember her as that young, you know, as the child, not how she ended up. We'll leave it there and we will see you next week for another episode. We'll see you then. See you then, guys. Bye-bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.